St. James Lutheran Church. Welcome to our Good Friday service. Let me begin with this prayer. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Praise to you, O Christ, Lamb of our salvation. Let's begin tonight by reading Psalm 31 together. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my afflictions. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in You, O Lord. I say, 
You are my God. My times are in Your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make Your face shine on Your servant. Save me in Your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is Your goodness, which You have stored up for those who fear You and worked for those who take refuge in You in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of Your presence You hide them from the plots of men. You store them in Your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from Your sight, but You heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to You for help. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Tonight, uh, we're going to do something a little bit differently. Uh, Normally, in worship services, uh, we read the text and then we have a sermon. We have teaching on that text. But tonight what I'd like to do is to do the sermon first, and then we're going to do the passion reading last. And as well, we're going to get a chance to sing, O Sacred Head Now Wounded with each other. Uh, The reason why this uh, might be helpful is because, of course, tonight is the heart of our Christian faith. This weekend is tonight and Easter Sunday morning. The heart of our Christian faith, much more than that, in fact. It's not just the heart of our personal faith. It's the heart of the history of the universe. My faith in the events that we celebrate tonight and Easter Sunday don't activate salvation. They appropriate it by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Salvation comes to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the events themselves are there objectively in human history. How I feel about them or think about them doesn't change anything. This is the heart. This is the turning point of the entire story of the history of humanity, the history of the universe. And so tonight, I'm going to do this sermon first. And then we're going to let that story have the last say. We're going to close with the Passion reading. Tonight, on the surface of it, looks like failure. Our leader, our Messiah, made promises. When he came into Galilee and he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Tied up with that is this claim that Caesar and all of his lackeys, whether they be Pontius Pilate or Herod, are on their way out. And God himself is about to become true king again. In fact, at his trial, Jesus says as much to Pilate. You couldn't do anything to me, he says to Pilate, unless God wills it. And yet, Rome beats him on this night 2,000 some years ago. Jesus says to uh, death, he says, I'm going to destroy you. Says in uh, John chapter 11, he says, if anybody believes in me, they'll never die. They'll never taste death. And yet on this night that we celebrate, we celebrate the death of the one who said that he could get rid of death. Most of you know that this is 
gospel power. It's paradoxical. It's not the way we normally expect things to work. But it is the power of the cross. Let's talk a little bit about tonight how in this story, the way that we normally think power works gets undermined by the power of the cross. Power usually it looks a certain way to us. There's certain things about power that we expect to just be. And if we see that they're there, we assume that that's power. And if we see that they're absent, we assume that it's weakness. Three things. First of all, the power of this world is always about self-promotion. Power always goes hand in hand with self-promotion. Think about the politicians that you know and that you see. Think about the political debates. Lots of times there'll be politicians in a political debate. Think about the presidential debates that you've seen. It's not, sometimes it's not the one who's the smartest. It's not the one who has the clearest vision about the best way to make our country a better country. It's the one who can promote themselves the best. It's the one who can stand out. It's the one who can cut down the others the quickest. It's the one with the quickest one-liner. This is the way it is, not just in politics, but it's the way all of life. It's the way it is in work and school. If you want to get that fellowship, if you want to get that new office on the corner, if you want to get that promotion, you're going to have to promote yourself. You're going to have to make it real clear that you deserve that TA more than your fellow students do, that you deserve that position more than your fellow workers do. That's power. The ability to promote yourself in such a way that everybody kind of notices that person's in charge, that person's got it going on. Churches are the same way. They're no different. I remember sitting in a meeting several years ago when um, in a, a meeting of church leadership when there was a discussion about a neighboring church that was kind of related to this church and how they were looking for a pastor. And somebody in this leadership meeting brought up, well, what are we going to do if that church over there gets a real dynamic new pastor? That word dynamic is interesting. It's actually related in Greek to the word for power. What do we do when we get somebody who's got the ability to promote themselves in their church? We're going to have to play catch-up, right? Because that's the way power works in our world. The ones who can promote themselves the best are the ones who hold the power. This world's power is about self-promotion. But Jesus' power in the story that we're about to read is about self-sacrifice. He doesn't promote himself. Instead, he gives himself up. He doesn't defend himself. He stands in front of this middling bureaucrat, who has, the power, who has the power to authorize his execution and does authorize his execution more out of convenience than out of any real sort of conviction that this person is a threat to the empire. Pilate says, go ahead and crucify this guy. And Jesus submits to it. It's unlawful, it's unjust, it's basically a lynching. But Jesus doesn't try to get the upper hand. He accepts this as his Father's will. He lays down on a cross made out of wood. The wood coming from a tree that Jesus in his sovereignty caused to be planted. Jesus caused that seed to grow up into a tree. Jesus knew what that tree was like. Jesus knew the names of the birds and the other animals that lived around and in that tree. He was nailed to that cross with spikes. Spikes of which the atoms were being held by Jesus as he was being nailed there. The atoms were being held consistently together by the will of the one who was being crucified by those same nails. Crucified by a human being, a Roman soldier, whose heart was beating at that moment that he was nailing those spikes into Jesus because Jesus himself 
was willing that man's heart to beat at that moment. The Lord and Creator of the universe, the one Colossians 1 tells us, causes all things to consist, had every right to snap his fingers and make it all go away. But he wasn't interested in self-promotion. He knew that real power was in his self-sacrifice. Philippians 2 says this, he didn't consider glory, power, being recognized as deity in that moment as something to be grasped. But he took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. The world's power is about self-promotion. Jesus' power is about self-sacrifice. Worldly power is also about getting followers. This is how we judge our politicians, right? The ones that are good with the one-liners, the ones that are good to, to uh, uh, quickly cut their uh, comrades down in debate. The ones who are able to get a following, to get people excited and rallying behind them. That's how we judge real power. People who can dynamically cause other people to want to vote for them or to follow them. That's how we judge cultural influence too. I'll be honest with you. I'll see something on Twitter and uh, I'll think, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I really agree with this or maybe I really disagree with this. And I'll look at that person's Twitter profile and I'll see maybe that they've got 30 followers and I'll think, oh, I can probably disregard that. This is not somebody of any sort of consequence. I don't really need to be scared of them or I don't really need to be proud of them or to really, really agree with what they say because they've only got 30 followers. This is the way we think about power. People with real power have followers. But this isn't how Jesus' power works. While worldly power is about getting followers, the power of Jesus is about serving those who've abandoned him. Jesus dies completely alone, abandoned by everybody who he thought was his friends. And in fact, he predicted it was going to happen. All of you are going to betray me this night, he says. In fact, in the text that we're about to read, we're going to see that Jesus actually encouraged it. He says to the Roman soldiers who come to arrest him, like, if you're looking for me, let these other ones go. In fact, earlier in this story, some of Jesus' friends say to him, you're going to Jerusalem to die? We're going to go because we want to die with you. And Jesus says, you can't be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. You can't do this. Jesus doesn't need followers. His power is not the sort that demands that others follow him. In this moment, his power is the sort that works best when he's abandoned. It works best when it's nobody who's helping him, but he alone, by himself, is rescuing the world. He doesn't demand followers. That's not real power. He wants to serve those who've abandoned him. And third, worldly power is about coercion. This is what we all want, right? This is what politicians want to go back to them. It's what bosses want. It's what workers want. It's what teachers want. It's what students want. It's what parents want. It's what kids want. We want to be able to coerce. We want to be able to say, the thing that I think should happen, I want to be able to make that happen. That's the worldly sort of power. People that can get stuff done. But the power of Jesus isn't about coercion. It's about grace. It's not about forcing people to do things. It's about changing them from the inside out. When I was a kid, I read a story about the sun and the wind getting into an argument. They had both seen a man walking with his coat on, and they had gotten into a disagreement. The sun and the wind had gotten into a disagreement about which one of us can knock that man's coat off first. And the wind took the first crack at it, and the wind blew and blew as hard as it could. 
the harder it blew, and it managed to get the man's coat off his shoulder initially, but the harder it blew, the harder it tried to force this man's coat off, the more he gathered it around himself, buttoned it up to his neck, clutched it with his belt, crossed his arms to keep himself warm, and the wind couldn't get the coat off. When the sun came out for its turn, though, the sun gently shone on this guy so that eventually the man was convinced, this is more comfortable if I take this coat off. This is what the gospel power of Jesus is like. It doesn't force anything. Jesus, as as the, the Roman soldier says, as Jesus is dying, truly this man was the Son of God. He doesn't say that because Jesus has him down on his knees with a sword to his throat. He says that because he watches Jesus die. The power of Jesus is like the power of the sun. It convinces us from the inside out to remove the coat. Jesus doesn't force us to submit. He changes our hearts so that we want to follow him. Jesus didn't have to promote himself by way of review. Jesus didn't have to promote himself because he knew that if he gave himself up on the cross, his heavenly Father would exalt him And give him a name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He didn't have to desperately hold on to his followers. He knew that if he gave up his followers and was assassinated for his followers' sins. And he said this as much in John. He said, when I'm lifted up, when I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus didn't have to coerce us. By loving us, he wooed us to himself so that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. That's the power of Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank and praise you tonight for being a good God, the kind of God who changes our hearts with his love, the kind of God who sacrifices himself, who doesn't call upon us to sacrifice ourselves for him, for you, but instead Send your son to sacrifice himself for us. And may tonight, may this whole weekend, may we be reminded one more time afresh, may it be activated in our minds, the reality of your love and your son Jesus Christ. May we grasp one more time how great that love is for us. And may it change the way we think about power in our world. May we as Christians, may may those of us who believe in the death and resurrection of your Son, may we be empowered by your Holy Spirit to not demand followers, to not coerce, to not try and rule with this world's power, to not self-promote, but to give all of that up to you, to give all that up to the glory of the power of the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Tonight we're going to read the Passion reading. The story of Jesus' arrest, His trial, and His execution from John 18 and chapter 19. John's eight, John chapter 18 and 19. Let me begin. When Jesus had spoken these words, 
he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all this would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I'm he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. Then Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Oh, sacred head, now the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also aren't one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, 
Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also aren't one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. 
Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. My shepherd Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you now that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. 
So he delivered over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put, they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 